Good morning. My name's Howard, and I serve on the elder board here at First Baptist Church, Medford, Oregon. I'm going to read in Psalm 84, 1 through 4. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altar. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. You may be seated. Thanks, Howard. Hey, good morning. I'm Greg, I'm one of the pastors here at FBC, and this morning we're going to be in Psalm 84, so if you uh, have a copy of Scripture with you, you're welcome to turn to Psalm 84. We're going to be looking at this psalm this morning as we are looking at a number of different psalms throughout this summer. And uh, let me begin with prayer, and we're going to ask God for His help, and then we'll take a few minutes to look at Psalm 84. God, we thank you for your word and the opportunity this morning to read your word and to think about it. And uh, we pray, God, you'd give us uh, wisdom and insight by your Holy Spirit to understand what your word means. And uh, also, Lord, to be willing to allow your word to confront the realities of our own hearts, to encourage us, uh, to convict us and exhort us, and to transform us to be like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Psalm 84, to the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Psalm of the sons of Korah. So I thought I would begin with both geography and genealogy. In the event that you were feeling alert, this will shut that down. <laughs> Here we go. The sons of Korah were Levites. Of the sons of Levi. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but you have Levi. And then of the sons of Levi, there's one of the tribes of Israel. You have the sons of Aaron. The sons of Aaron, who was a Levite, they were all the priests. And all the other Levites weren't priests, but they helped out with the tabernacle. So the sons of Korah are the sons of Levi, but they're not priests. But they get to help out. There's a difference between you. They're like helpers, is what they are, right? And so the sons of Korah, they came from a line of Levites who are called the Kohathites. Now, I can see you're feverishly writing this down. So why is that important? Because the Kohathites lived in two different places in Israel, we learned in Judges. Number one, some of the Kohathites lived in the area of Judah. Now, these Kohathites were sons of Aaron, so they were priests. So that way, they had easy access to Jerusalem, so that when it was their time to work in the temple, they could have a short journey to Jerusalem. Now, the Kohathites, who weren't priests, they were just the helpers, they lived way up in the north. They live in the region of Dan, in the region of Manasseh and Ephraim, way up north by the Sea of Galilee, way up there. Long walk. Why does this matter? The reason this matters for the sons of Korah, they would have lived way up there. They would have lived far away from Judah. And in fact, there are very few places you could get and that were farther from Jerusalem 
and still in Israel than where these folks lived. And so why does that matter? This psalm is a song of travel. Travel to Jerusalem. We're going to go visit the temple. And so we have this song that we're going to sing that's going to carry us through our journey. Now, you have songs like this. The most famous of these songs is what? 99 bottles of beer on the wall. I was tempted to change it to the Christian version of 99 bottles of milk on the wall, but that's gross. I mean, the, the song, let's be true to the original, 99 bottles of beer on the wall. So we need to differentiate here. That song is not a song of travel. That is a song to pass the time. It makes you desire your destination so badly. So how do we end this song? And who thought to teach the kids this song? There's got to be a, that's not what we're talking about. What kind of song is this? It's not a pass the time kind of song. Let's say, for example, you are a huge Taylor Swift fan, right? And who isn't, right? Who isn't? I'm, I can tell who isn't because you're looking up on your phones. Who is Taylor Swift? Okay, so you're a huge Taylor Swift fan. You realize she is not bringing her era's tour to Medford that I know of. Did she add a Medford date? No, she hasn't. So you got to travel to wherever you're going to go if you were able to get tickets to this concert because apparently it's hard to get tickets. And... Uh, and so you would have to travel. So what are you going to do if you have to drive or fly? If you have to drive or fly on your way to the Taylor Swift concert, what are you going to listen to? Taylor Swift, right. That's what you're going to do because you want, why? Because you want to get all amped up and ready to go and you're going to get excited. We're going to hear these songs. It's, that's what this song is like. It's I'm on my way to Jerusalem and I want to get excited. I'm looking forward to it. It's a, it's a song not merely to pass the time, it's a song to get my heart moving in the right direction for my visit, not just merely to the temple, but to the presence of God, where my heart is going to be drawn towards God. So the fancy word for this, it's a psalm of pilgrimage. And that's why we've titled the message today, Pilgrim's Progress. It's a song that celebrates the destination while at the same time recognizing that the road between here and the destination is one that is difficult, but it's a part of the process. The goal is not merely to get to Jerusalem, but it's the experience of going from here to there. That's what this song celebrates. It's the song of the pilgrim's road going to Jerusalem to visit God. And of course, this reminds us of John Bunyan, the author of that famous book, Pilgrim's Progress, and that's precisely the trajectory of that book is a person going from believer to the city of God and the, and the road that is traveled. And we see this same kind of theme here in this psalm. It's a psalm of singing and celebrating as a person makes their way down to Jerusalem. So the title of the message today is Pilgrim's Progress. We've got three sections. I'm going to give you all the answers to begin with in case you want to take a nap. We're going to look, first look at, pil at the pilgrim's vision. Then we're going to look at the pilgrim's road. And finally, the pilgrim's hope. Three sections of this psalm, the pilgrim's vision, the pilgrim's road, and then finally, the pilgrim's hope. Howard read these first uh, four verses for us. Let me just read them again to get them into your mind. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sink for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at the altars, O Lord of hosts. My King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. All right, so this is the beginning of the psalm. So 
we would imagine you would start singing this psalm, part of the psalm, where? At the end of the road at the beginning. This is at the start. So this is the psalmist recognizing where he's going, and he has a vision of where he's going, but that vision isn't in front of him just yet. Let me illustrate this for you. I have a couple of drawings I'm gonna, from a guy named Frank Gehry. He's an architect, a well-known architect. Go ahead, uh, Brian, just put up the first picture up there. This is his concept drawing of a building that he built. That's a nice drawing. It doesn't look as good on the screens up here. Uh, and you say, does it look better on the other screens? Slightly. Now, obviously, you can tell he's written on the bottom what that is, but obviously you know exactly what he's drawing, right? Absolutely not. So, Brian, let's show that building, the Disney Concert Hall down in Los Angeles. So that's what he drew there. So you've got, he has a vision, that scribble, and then you have the reality of what that looked like. That's that Disney Concert Hall right there. I've got a couple more. Here's his house. He designed his own house. Uh, the Frank Gehry house. Look at it. Go ahead and show the next one. Here's his house. Lovely, lovely, lovely. If you saw that on Zillow, you'd make an all-cash offer without a tour. All right, go ahead and show the house uh, there, Brian. And there it is. That's what his house looks like. Uh, you know, I don't know how the drawing and that are related, but they are. All right, his most famous building, the Guggenheim, and here's his concept drawing for the Guggenheim there. Again, I don't know. I'm assuming he was sober when this was... Drawn, I have no way of knowing, but you say, I don't even know what's happening there. I think I saw that in my kids' kindergarten homework that came home, right? So let's show the Guggenheim uh, picture there. There it is. One of the most famous buildings he's uh, designed there is the Guggen Guggenheim. Last one, my favorite one, the Louis Vuitton Foundation building. There's his scribble. I just want to know how much this gentleman is getting paid <laughs> for these drawings as they were. So I don't know, and you wonder what's going on in his mind, but he's scribbling these onto the page. And here is the Louis Vuitton Foundation building, a beautiful building actually. Go ahead. There it is. I love that building. It's beautiful. I wish you would have drawn that. Yeah, you draw that. Okay, yeah, build that. What is that other thing? So here's the thing. We're all done with those. Take those uh, down, Brian. Thank you. So what he has is he has a vision of what is, but it's not here yet. So there's sort of a sketch. There's sort of, I have an idea of what it is, but it's not the realized thing. But if I'm going to go on a journey from the far northern part of Israel in Dan and take this long road down to Jerusalem, I need to have a vision of where I'm going and why I'm going there. A clear vision. And what the, the psalmist tells us, the point, the whole point of this journey is to experience God's presence. In fact, there's sort of an argument here. The vision, a person who has a vision of what ought to be says there is something better than what is. There's something better, and I want to move towards this. And that's what the psalmist says. So there's something better, and what that something better is, is the presence of God. And in fact, it's the presence of God while having right relationship with God. So the, what we call that, when a person desires the presence of God and desires right relationship with God, we call that worship. That's to seek God. And to seek his connection and seek relationship with him is worship and, and what the psalmist says is to experience the presence of God in worship is a great blessing. Let's look at a couple of these phrases in verses 1 uh, through 4 just to highlight them. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Of course, he is talking about the temple. He is talking about the temple which was in Jerusalem. And it's not merely that he likes the building. The building is representative of the presence of God. And then you have to remember 
what the building was intended to communicate. The building is intended to communicate something very, very clear. Number one, you ought to desire the presence of God. That should be something that moves in our hearts, is to, to know God and have his presence. However, there's something between me and the presence of God. So if you went to the temple, could you just walk into the Ark of the Covenant, pull up a chair, play pinochle? No, because who plays pinochle? I don't even know why that came up. No, you can't just do that. You can't just stroll in. In fact, only certain people can go in. Everything about the architecture of that temple was designed to communicate there's a problem. In order to get in here, you've got to bring a sheep or a goat. You've got to bring a sacrifice. Something, in fact, something has to die. Blood has to be shed. What that is intended to communicate to the worshiper is there is a barrier between God and I. I want to have a relationship with him, but there needs to be something to pass into to allow me to pass into the presence of God. So even to come into the courts, I've got to be Jewish. And even to come into the courts, I've got to have a sacrifice. But then to go into the presence of God, I'm not going to be able to do that. I'm going to need a priest to go in there for me. And I'm going to experience the presence of God. And, and so everything about this journey is a desire for the presence of God, but the, the building even reminds me that there's a barrier. There's a barrier between God and I, and that needs to uh, be fixed. But the longing begins with, I want to have the presence of God. That's the vision. Is there something better than what is? And, and that something better is the presence of God. Right now I'm not experiencing the presence of God, and I want to have the presence of God. <clears throat> then the psalmist sort of remembers the last time he had been there, probably a few months ago. Most Jewish, in fact, the Bible said in the Old Testament, most all Jewish men were intended to uh, go to Jerusalem three times a year, the three different occasions they, they and their families would go. And it's like the, the psalmist remembers back to the last time. Look at verse 3. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself at your altars. So here he is, he's standing there and he's got his animal and he's bringing it to the priest and the priest is going to sacrifice, he's got to put his hand on it and then they're going to sacrifice it and then they're going to wave it and they're going to slaughter it and then they're going to burn it and then they're going to eat it. So much work, right? And he's doing all this and then he sees the altar. The al you, you know what I'm talking about? The altar where they burn the animals and whatnot? He sees the altar and off to the side, what's he see? He sees a bird's nest. He said, look... Look at that. I got to walk 80, 90, 100 miles in the heat in the sand. I get here and I can't even get in unless I bring an animal. And even then I've got to stand in line. It takes forever. And look at this bird. His house is right there. He lives here. And the psalmist says, you know what? I wish I was that bird. That bird has better access to God himself than I do. Even the sparrow finds a home at the altar of God. So this is his longing. He wants the presence of God, and he recalls seeing that little bird's nest. Like, what a great place to have your house. You could, you could have your house right there, and you're always in, in God's presence. And he has a bit of envy for this bird that this bird has ready access to the presence of God. This is what he desires. This is his vision for his relationship with God as he's getting ready to go on his journey is, is I want to have the presence of God, closeness with God. And I know there's a barrier there, but I know there's a way for me to have access to God. And that's what I desire. And when I see something like a sparrow or a swallow in their nest with access to God that I don't have it, it makes me wish I had that. 
Now, not everybody, not everybody feels that way. Not everybody feels that way about worshiping God. Not everybody feels that way about the presence of God. In fact, the Bible in Amos chapter 8 talks about the people of Israel and their worship of God, and they didn't have this deep desire to worship God the way the sons of Korah did here. Let me read Amos chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. Amos was never really concerned about being nice. So here we go. Hear this, you who trample on the needy, and bring the poor of the land to the end, to an end, saying this, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the epa small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, and, and so the chaff of the wheat. The key part of this for understanding what's going on in there is, is verse 5. They're, these are people saying, when will the new moon be over and the Sabbath be over? So what they were doing is they had to, they had to worship God according to the Old Testament law. These people of Israel, they knew they had, to, they had to close their shops on the Sabbath and the celebrations. And instead of celebrating the presence of God and his provision that God would provide them so much that they could take a day off, and so much that every year, they could, every seven years, they could take a whole year off. They, begr they begrudgingly worshiped God. They said, oh, when will the Sabbath be over so we can open our shop again? So we can sell again, so we can make some money. And, and, and to them, the worship of God was a significant interruption of their life. Worship, the worship of God was a burden. Oh, my lands, do we have to worship God again? I, is it Sabbath day already? I've got, a, I've got a big deal I'm trying to close. And they were going to come in tomorrow. And I'm going to lose the contract. And so this is, they were begrudgingly worshiping God. And they were, these were the guys, they're going down to Sabbath. Fine, we'll go worship God. Are we done yet? Pastor, got places to be. Early bird special. It's done at 1130. I don't even know. Do people have early bird specials? You're not getting it. Just put, I'm just putting it out there. You're going to miss it. So they begrudgingly uh, worshiped God. God. Worshiping God was a burden, not a delight. And, it, and, and, and that inner reality that they didn't want to worship God showed up in the relationships with others. What they do, these business people, they want to make the ipa small and the shekel great. Now, an ipa is a unit of measure. I don't know how big it is, so I'm going to say it's about yay big. That's about an ephah. And that's exactly what these guys did. They said, listen, it's one shekel for one ephah of grain. And you shouldn't have to ask, how big is your ephah? Because it always should be what? It should always be the same. In fact, in the law, it said it should always be the same. And what these guys would do, well, we've got a lowercase e ephah. It's a little bit smaller. You notice this? You've seen this before. It's the ice cream containers. <laughs> Have you seen these? It's the same price. And you know, that is not a quart of ice cream. That will never be a quart of ice cream. And then you look really small. Now I've got to put my glasses on. Oh, we're not even close to a quart. At least they're telling us that. Right? But it's really, and that's what, but these people were saying, no, but this is a quart of ice cream. No, it's a full quart. Boy, it looks kind of small. Well, it's because uh, I'm further away from you. And so they were cheating people. Not only that, they had false balances. So when you weighed it out, it said, oh, no, that's yeah, the full weight. But they had a different weight that, that, was, that would cheat people. They would sell the chaff 
of the wheat. So what they would do is they'd have a bag, and of course the chaff is the part that you can't eat. Well, you can't eat it, but you're going to have some trouble. And so, so the, what they would do is they would spread it out, but then they would mix that in. Nowadays we call that fillers, right? Or maybe put all the chaff in the bottom of the bag, and they wouldn't notice it till they got home. But they paid for wheat. So what is happening is these individuals whose heart was set on their profit and not on the worship of God, their heart condition showed up in how they lived their life. So because they didn't desire to worship God, their life was directed in a way that didn't bring glory to God. They begrudgingly worshiped God and the reality of their life showed that they didn't desire and didn't have a vision for the presence of God. Whereas the sons of Korah here are celebrating, oh, that I could make the long trip from Dan to Jerusalem to experience the presence of God and once again recognize that I am his son and his daughter and we have a right relationship because of the sacrifice of blood. Okay, let's go back to uh, Psalm 84. Let's look at verses five through nine. Let me read them for you as we look at Pilgrim's Progress, the Pilgrim's road. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. Pilgrim's progress, pilgrim's road. While the authors of this psalm have a vision for the glory of God's presence in right worship, they are not going to whitewash the nature of their journey. This is a hard journey. It's a difficult journey, and I wouldn't even describe it as a safe journey. And so they are not going to pretend that the journey from Dan or Ephraim or Manasseh is an easy journey. They're saying, to go from here to where our vision lies, we've got to travel a road, and that road is one that is a real challenge. Now, you've all likely seen the film The Wizard of Oz, and we recognize that's exactly how this is. When Dorothy and her dog... Toto, I don't know why that one went away. At the beginning, it's a beautiful brick road in a beautiful city, and they're singing, and there's lollipops, and there's all kinds of fun, right? And there's frolicking, frivolity. And then they start walking the road, but you don't know what is between here and the destination. As it turns out, there's spots on that road that are less desirable than the beginning and the end. The road is filled with all kinds of unseen perils, and that's what this author is describing for us. While I have this great vision of God's presence and worship of God, the road from here to there is one that is difficult. In fact, we might even say, if we knew the condition of the road between here and there, would we take it? And is it worth it? The sons of Korah are saying it is. The psalmist believes it is worth it. However, they are not going to minimize the difficulty of this road because the difficulty of the road is apparent to everyone. Blessed are those, verse five, whose strength is in you, whose heart are the highways to Zion. So he starts talking about the highway to Zion. Don't think highway like we have. This is a footpath, 
A footpath also traveled by animals. So that's a footpath with obstacles is what that is. And this is a, 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 a long descent with a long ascent at the end. And it's all in desert. And it's also going to be in areas that are frequented and traveled by, by bandits. There is no guarantee of safety. There is no police, state police, cell phone. It's every man needs to look out for himself and consider his own ability to keep him and those with him safe from here to there. And, and the Old Testament is littered with travelers traveling in this area who are dealt with violently. There's several stories, and I won't get them, there's just no time, of this area is not a place that is safe to travel. You said, but you're in Israel. People are people. And he said, blessed are those whose strength is in you. You know you have a tough road ahead when somebody says, you better have the strength of the Lord to go where you're going. You know the road ahead. Wait, wait, wait a second. I thought I just needed some water and some hay for the donkey. Oh, no, you're going to need the strength of the Lord. So immediately you know something's going on here. Immediately you know this highway is not for the faint of heart. Verse 6. They go through the valley of Baca. The valley of tears is one way of understanding this word here. But there's interest, this is interesting about how he describes this valley of tears. They go through the valley of Baca, the valley of tears, these travelers, these pilgrims, but they make it a place of springs. The early rain covers it with, pool, with pools. What, he, what this poet is describing here is a place that you travel through that is difficult and perilous and sad and scary. However, the presence of the pilgrims makes it a place of joy and refreshment. That very presence of the pilgrims on this path, suddenly this path isn't as bad as it was before. Suddenly now there's, he's describing this path that was a valley of tears. Now it's a valley of springs. It's a valley of pools. And of course, having water during your journey is critically important. And what he's describing, he's saying, listen, the pilgrims traveling in the country to, who have a vision of God, their very presence on this road is bringing hope and joy to others. It's, it's, it's taking this road of danger and fear and turning it into a place of refreshment. A place where people, who people can be built up and supported. But there was another guy who took a trip similar to this. His name was Ezra. He's in the Old Testament. You could look him up in the table of contents, read his story. But he had convinced the guy who was in charge of him over in Babylon that he wanted to take a trip over and... He wanted to take all the furniture and whatnot for the temple, back to the temple that they were rebuilding. Right? Have you heard this story? Uh, if not, you can Google it. And so they... He's got all the stuff from the temple. Now, what's everything in the temple made of? Gold. Okay, so he's got a whole bunch of gold, like a whole bunch of gold. They're so concerned about having all the gold when they arrive that they count it and weigh it out before they leave. They get a group of guys together. They count all the dishes, plates, wick trimmers, candelabras, everything else. Count it, weigh it, put it in the storage, hire a Brinks truck and a bunch of armed guards. No, they didn't. What'd they do? See, what happened was Ezra went to the king, who wasn't a believer, and he said, I want to haul all the furnishings for the temple back to Israel. And the king says, oh, yeah, it's awesome. And Ezra said, because God's in it. God wants us to do this. And the king was like, wow, that's cool. So, but then Ezra started thinking about, boy, I am hauling a whole bunch of gold. That seems like something that people would want to steal. So what would you normally do? Brink's truck. 
armed guards, maybe a chariot or a thousand, right? What does the Bible say, Ezra said? He was ashamed to ask the king for a guard because he had already told the king that God was the one doing this. So how could he go ask for guards? Because what's the king going to say? I thought God was in this. Is God in this or am I in this? And so Ezra wouldn't. He said, no, I'm not going to ask for a guard. And so Ezra makes the trip from Babylon to Jerusalem with a fortune in gold and makes it safely. No bandits, nothing, which is really crazy. It's really unheard of. And that's what this author is describing, this same kind of thing, is the disciples making their journey, trusting, as it says in verse 1, those whose strength is in you, the Lord. Those who are trusting in God for their strength are bringing refreshment. Verse 7, they go from strength to strength. Not saying that they never have weakness or fear or concern or danger. It's saying that because they trust in the Lord, their strength is renewed by God, even in times of great difficulty. Look how fearful it is. Verse 9, behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. If you are praying, God, be my shield and look in my direction, that means you are having a difficult trip, right? If you're praying this way, you know you're on the uphill slope and you're tired and thirsty. Or you see off in the distance a, a bunch of riders on the ridge and you wonder, are those bandits who are going to come over here and take me and my family as slaves? That is real concern that they would have. But what he's saying is, is worshipers seeking God on this difficult road brings refreshment to all those around. You know, Jesus talked about this road a little bit too. You're familiar with these passages. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 13, Jesus says this. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, the way is hard, that leads to life. And those who find it are few. It's almost like nobody has read this verse. It's almost like nobody has read this verse. Have you ever been a Christian before? Okay. Uh, and had a really bad day. And what's our favorite prayer? Mine included. What's my favorite prayer? Why, God? Now, this is an appropriate prayer because the psalmists pray this prayer a lot. So I'm not going to stop. I'm not telling you to stop. If you don't know why God is doing something, I suggest asking. But one of the answers is, what did you expect? But did you expect to get saved and never have to walk again? You just float around the world? You never have to exert yourself again? No, that's called heaven. Well, I don't know if there's floating in heaven. But Jesus says, the road from here to there is, let me, I can't remember what the word is. What is it? Um, oh, there it is. Hard. <laughs> okay. Maybe the other passage is better. Let's try it. Luke chapter 14, verse 28. This is Jesus when he was making a proposal to be a televangelist on TV. His proposal was turned down because this is it. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. 
Or what king going to encounter another king in a war will not sit down and first deliberate whether he's able to meet him with 10,000? Verse 32, if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for peace. Therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Okay, that's not better. That's worse. Disciples recognize the nature of the road. Disciples recognize what the road is like from here to the vision of our hope in the presence of God. We don't bear the cost of our salvation because Jesus bears the cost of our salvation. However, we recognize what the road is like. The condition of the road, the nature of our journey doesn't define our relationship with God or doesn't define what home is like. It's, the, it's how we get from here to there. If we're going to go from the north in Dan down to Jerusalem, we've got to walk this road. And Jesus is telling us, just like the sons of Korah, pray to God for strength. It's a narrow gate. It's a hard gate. My concern is many of us were never told this. We were, never, we were told to experience the blessing and joy of God, you get saved. And nobody told us the blessing and joy of God is his presence in our heart and life and the guarantee of salvation. Somebody told us that when we have a relationship with God, everything goes smoothly from then on out. That's what, many of us were told this. Why do people downplay the difficulty of a relationship with God? Why do we downplay the relationship or downplay our relationship with God? Because many of us would prefer to make a sale than to make a disciple. And Jesus called us to do what? Make disciples. That means sometimes, Jesus, I mean, Jesus, he, he was kind of edgy. I know we all uh, want the friendly Jesus, and he was friendly. He died for us. It's awesome. But he also, he also said it straight. Some of you can't hack it. That you want to go, uh, you want to skip through the tulips from here to glory. He said, I don't have one of those roads. I don't have that road. The road is one where you are going to be with me always, but the pilgrim's road is a road of difficulty. God is with us, but that's the pilgrim's road. And Jesus is simply saying it this way. You might want to consider that. Do you want to follow me? Now, where's the destination? The destination is glory. We're going to get to that. That's the last, the last section is pilgrim's hope. But he says, the road from here to there is one in which you're going to be calling out to me for strength and endurance and help. I'm going to be with you, Jesus says, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. But the pilgrim's road is filled with all kinds of unseen perils. Pilgrim's vision Pilgrim's Road, and finally, the Pilgrim's Hope. Let's read verses 10, 11, and 12 of Psalm 84. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Pilgrim's progress. Here is the pilgrim's hope. Now here in the summertime, some of us take a few trips during the summer, and maybe you've made your way to some 
roadside attractions. Uh, one that we all know of is Disneyland. Have you heard of Disneyland? Somebody goes to Disneyland, especially if they, if they have kids and you see the kids. Uh, usually when you see the kids and they've just come back from Disneyland, you ask them this question. What was your favorite thing? Right? You, yes, ever ask little kids that? And a couple of things I want to point out. An answer I have never heard from any kid, any age. Dumbo's ride. Never heard it. <laughs> Not one person. See, I went there, rode Dumbo's ride, said, I'm good. Let's go. Let's go. I'm done. What else is there? I, and, you, and some of the dads are here, you know, because you've ridden Dumbo's ride with your little two-year-old, and you're going, really, this is the thing. I paid $300 to get into this park. I do this in my car better. You know, anyway. Nobody says Dumbo's ride. What else does nobody say? Nobody says when they get to Disneyland, you know what really was great is the parking lot? <laughs> I just noticed, I mean, their lines are bright. I mean, you can see those lines. Those lines are, those lines are nice. And, and they're straight. And besides that, provide plenty of room for my car. In fact, last time I went to Disneyland a few years ago, uh, they were doing some construction and whatnot, which seems like they always are. Uh, you had to park, uh, I think, in Sacramento. Is where, I think is where we parked. And, and, uh, and they had some like uh, things that were carrying people, but you sort of had to convince them that you had some sort of physical, uh, and I wasn't able to pull that off. So we were, we were walking from the parking lot in Sacramento to, uh, to there. And so this is a long walk. So my personal experience with uh, Disneyland's parking lot was, uh, well, it was the Pilgrim's Road is what it was. Nobody says that. Here's what the psalmist says. The most insignificant place, the most insignificant place in God's presence is better than any other place. That's what he says. That's his hope. That's where he's going. He says, I know, I know that in the presence of God, the most insignificant, inconsequential place, the most unimportant, most looked over place there is better than any other place you could possibly be. The presence of God for the psalmist, he says, this is what my heart yearns for, is to be in the presence of God. What he's arguing for here, the person whose heart is moved to experience God's presence in worship, the end of the road is worth it. That's why he's able to walk this pilgrim's road is because he knows when he gets there, it doesn't matter how close I am, it doesn't matter where I end up, I know that I would rather spend a thousand years in that place than anywhere else. God's presence is experienced in all the joy and glory of this fully realized kingdom of God. That's what he's describing, not just his experience of the temple. Because even the temple is just a shadow, a hint, a foretaste. He's thinking of the kingdom of God. That's what he's anticipating. is the hope of the presence of God forever and the most inconsequential place in that place is worth being forever. I need to explain something about hope here. Hope here in the Bible is different than hope everywhere else in our world, especially in a Western sort of romantic culture that we have. We tend to nowadays use the word hope uh, really is a synonym for wish. We, we hope for something, and which is the same as we wish for something. Meaning, I hope for something. I don't know if it's actually going to happen, but I wish it would. And if it does, everything will be great. And so we use hope and wish as a synonym. You see what I'm explaining there? That's not how the Bible talks about hope. 
It's a different kind of hope, different word, uh, same word, different connotation. How does the Bible use the word hope? Here's how it uses the word hope. You're working on a Friday afternoon and you have vacation starting, right? So it's Friday, you're working, it's noon, but you know you get two weeks off. You just got to get through today. So what it is, that vacation's coming. Time's off, hotel's booked, flight is booked. Monday, I'm on vacation. I'm not wishing for it, it's coming. So on Friday, what I'm trying to do, I'm working my tail off because I know the more I can get done, the better I'm going to be able to chill out on my vacation. Anybody ever done this? All of a sudden, you are the most productive, efficient employee ever imagined. Your boss is going, this guy should take vacation more. He's got more done in four hours than he did all last month. And the reason you're able to buckle down and get it done and is because you have hope. Again, it's not a wish. I know what's coming Monday. And since I know what's coming Monday, today I can buckle down and get her done. That's Bible hope. I know the future is kingdom of God. I know that. It's not a wish. It's not a dream. It's not a fairy tale. The Bible tells me one day there will be the kingdom of God. I don't know when it is. Hopefully soon. And since that is certain, today I can bear down and get it done. Does that make sense? That's different than a wish. A wish is, gee, I hope Jesus comes back. Knock it off. That's not what your Bible says. Your Bible says he's coming back. And so because we have this certainty of hope, we can continue to walk this road knowing what's coming, the glory of the kingdom of God and the presence of God. And that's what this guy anticipates. Some of us, there are some people in here worried that heaven is going to be boring. Heaven is not going to be boring. What he describes here, he says, uh, verse 10, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. So he's looking at his road, difficult, hard, it would be easier to stop off on this road of pilgrimage and instead pause at the tent of wickedness, indulge the flesh with rest and ease, pursue my own appetites instead of the journey towards the presence of God. He says, I could do that, but I won't. Why? Because the presence of God is better than any of my appetites, the satisfaction of which is always temporary and brings shame and guilt, but I know the presence of God is better than any of those things. And so even if I could spend a thousand years pursuing all of my appetites of wickedness, one day in the house of God would be better than all of that. Can you imagine? That's what he's saying. Now certainly as a person, as a human, a man of the flesh, on the one hand he's saying something he believes, on the other hand telling himself, telling himself something he needs to believe more so. And so he says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. This means two things. Number one, a doorkeeper. What does a doorkeeper do? He's the guy that opens the door, right? So he says, you're going to the house of God. He said, you know what? If I was just the guy that opens the door, that'd be fine with me. I would do that forever. That would be better than anything I could achieve here in this world, is to just be a doorkeeper. The other thing this also sort of implies, when you get to temple... And you're going to worship, you've got, especially on these holidays, these three, uh, three times a year, you've got, you got your goat, you've got your kids, knock it off, uh, you've got your offering, and you're standing, and what you've got to do? There's like only so many priests. So what do I got? I've got a line. Yeah, right. So he's, he says, you know what? I would rather stand in line for hours trying to keep a goat under control and my kids under control, and both of those are difficult waiting to get to my turn to, to meet the priest to worship God. I would rather stand in line 
waiting for my turn at the temple than to indulge in the wickedness in the pursuit of the flesh. That's how much he desires this anticipation of the presence of God. He knows relationship with God is what his soul uh, longs for. There's a great picture of this in 1 Kings chapter 10. It's a, a real familiar passage. We've looked at it before, but I think it relates. We're going to look at it again. This is talking about King Solomon. He had a visitor from North Africa, the Queen of Sheba. This is what she said when she got to Solomon and, and was able to see what was going on in his palace and in the temple. She said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men, verse 8, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set, on, set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Well, in there. So what it is, here's this queen, this, this ruler with wealth and glory of her own. And when she comes to Solomon's temple, she has some sense of envy towards the servants who serve the king. Man, these guys are lucky. They get to hang out in here with you. They get to hear you talk and they get to hear oh, what's the comings and goings. In fact, this reminds us of this worshiper in Psalm 84. Remember what he, had, what he felt when he saw that bird on the altar? Remember that? He said, man, look at that bird. Yes, just live here. That's the queen of Sheba. She comes and in a sense what she says is I would gladly trade my palace for an apron to serve in the kingdom of, it, of Solomon so that I could just be here. I could just be in, in this place. And the pilgrims that are going from Dan down to Jerusalem, this is their hope. They're gladly going to make their journey because they have a vision of what's coming and they're going to make that, that road down to the temple and their hope is to experience the presence of God as they recognize that that is the place their heart yearns for. And visiting the temple, of course, is not the fulfillment of it, but it reminds us that a day is come, coming when God's kingdom will be fully experienced. The pilgrim's vision, the pilgrim's road, the pilgrim's hope. Think a minute about the pilgrim's vision. I just had a couple of questions I wanted you to think about in your own life. I wonder if maybe God has shown you things in your own life that maybe need to be a little different than they are. Maybe God has shown you some things in your own heart and your life that you say, here's what my life is like and here's what it ought to be like. What do we call that? If you say, here's what it is and here's what it ought to be. What do we call that? It's vision. Here's what it is. Here's what it ought to be like. And maybe God, through his word or the encouragement of people in your life, you've seen something in your life and you've said, here's, what, here's what's going on. And, you know, I don't know if that's the way those things are supposed to be. If I'm going to walk as a follower of Christ, I think, I, think, I think some change needs to occur here. And so the question is, that's you sort of in a sense. In one area of your Christian life, now you're standing in the northern part of Israel. You're in Dan. And you've had this vision. You know what? Here's something that ought to be different. And I don't, I'm not really sure what, what that entails, but I know there's an area of my life that needs to change. The question is, what is your part in depressing into that? 
Obviously, God by his Holy Spirit is the only one who can change you. I mean, you are stubborn. I only say that because you're a person. We all are stubborn. We don't want to change. We want the world to change around us, to conform to our ways. And God calls us to have our heart transformed. So the question is, when God has opened your eyes, and certainly God has, if you have his Holy Spirit and you're engaging with his word, certainly some things have popped up that you go, huh, I'm not sure if that's the way things are supposed to be. The question is, what does it mean for you to start down that journey in that area of your life and pursue God's presence? The question we might ask is, what does it mean for you to worship God with that particular area of your life? Where you say, I would rather dwell in the presence of God in worship than spend time in the tent of my wickedness. And that's where I say, and you say, oh, well, certainly if I turn to God with an area in my life that I want him to transform, certainly that path will just be skipping through the tulips, one victory after another, right? No, that's not the road he's got. That road doesn't exist. It's a road of pressing into God with faith and trust and hope and times of difficulty and failure and victory and a little more failure and encouragement and then discouragement. That's the road. But what do we want to do? Do we want to have this picture of what we know God, should, we, God needs to do in my heart and just say, you know what, that road's too hard for me. I'm just going to leave it how it is. Are we okay with that? Are you okay with that? The psalmist says, no, I've got a vision. I'm going to step out down that road and I'm going to see what God might do. Maybe you would share that with somebody. Say, you know, I've got to travel this road and will you pray for me? Will you encourage me? Will you call me out when I step off this road? We call that accountability. Pilgrim's vision. How about the pilgrim's road? When you look at your walk with the Lord, have some things gone differently than you expected? Maybe I should ask that differently. Has anything gone the way you expected? Right? Here's the thing. One encouragement. Many of us, when things don't go the way we expected, we followed Christ and we pursued him by faith and we started walking down that road and things did not go the way we expected, we assume something wrong with us because everybody else it seems to be working out, right? That, you ever notice that? And so you go, I think there's something wrong with me. I think maybe God doesn't like me very much. I, th I, think, I think there's something wrong with me. So here's the encouragement for you. If you are walking with the Lord and things didn't go the way you expected, welcome to the road. That's the road. The question then is, when we recognize what the road is like, how are we going to respond? How are we going to respond in those moments where we go, wow, I didn't see this one coming. I did not know this was going to be on the journey. I had thought there might be this, that, or the other thing, but boy, I did not see this one coming. And, and if that hasn't happened to you yet as a believer, just wait a minute, it's coming. I didn't see this one coming. What the psalmist does here is such a great model for us. Verse eight, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed. This is how we do it. We're walking this road and stuff pops up and we didn't see that one coming. Lord, give me your strength. And here's what's interesting as a believer. As you pursue God for strength in your moment of weakness, what do you provide to the people around you? 
that valley of tears becomes a valley of springs. That's how God works in the power of his people. See, we want to be heroes ministering to people who need heroes like us. And the, the trajectory is not that on this journey. It's people who need God who minister to others who need the Lord. And the way we experience that best is when in humility we say, God, help me. And that's when we become a spring to others around us. Pilgrim's progress, the pilgrim's vision, the pilgrim's road, finally the pilgrim's hope. What do you want your future to be like? If you want glory in the presence of God, you have to trust Jesus to forgive your sin. That's the start of the pilgrim's road. Now, I don't think I've undersold it or oversold it telling you what that road's going to be like. We know what it's like. But if you want the glory of, of the presence of God and God to, to be in your life in that kind of power, it requires you admitting that you need forgiveness for your sin. That without God, you are dead in your sin. So that's our hope. And if you want that hope of one day experiencing the very presence of God in your life on that day after walking this road, then trust Jesus to forgive you. It doesn't matter what you've done. He forgives anyone who turns to him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your honesty. A lot of people in our lives have sold us a lot of bill of goods. Many of us know lots of religious leaders and lots of stuff out there that seems like they're selling timeshares. Jesus, we thank you. You're honest with us. You save us from our sins and give us relationship with God that will never end. But to walk with you in this life is a journey that's filled with unseen perils. God, we pray that you would give each of us by your spirit a godly vision of what we yearn for. Give us a vision, God, of what it means to worship you with our lives. Give us a vision, God, of what's coming in our future so that what's going on in our life right now would be informed by your presence and your power. God, I pray for those of us who are walking this road and we are experiencing times of great difficulty. We're experiencing things we did not see coming. God, we pray that you would give us strength. God, give us the power to keep walking in you. Give us a vision for your kingdom that says it's better. It's better than stopping here. God, I pray for those who are here with us this morning who don't yet have hope in Jesus. In this moment, they recognize they need forgiveness of their sin. And I pray, God, that by your spirit, you would give us the strength to reach out to you and to trust you for forgiveness and look forward to your kingdom forever. Thank you for your son, Jesus. We can't wait till we see him. Until then, God, give us strength to walk this road. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand up with us as we close with a song.